scripture as we begin our Advent season comes from Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, O people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. The daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Here ends the reading of God's word. This is a weird time of year, isn't it? The days are so oddly short. Even at the Rimmer House where we eat dinner pretty early, we still eat in the dark because it's dark by like five o'clock. The weather is turning into winter, but then we have days like today where it sort of goes back on its decision. This time of year is a time of preparation. We prepare for winter. Hopefully you've taken care of your leaves by now. It is time to put away the rakes and find your snow shovels. Is your snow brush in the car? Where is that box of hats and gloves? Is our snowblower working? Do I have enough salt, enough bird seed for the winter? We prepare to finish a year. At work, we're asked questions like, did we hit our numbers for 2014? Did we accomplish our goals? Suddenly we remember our New Year's resolutions and we wonder how we did. If we are in school or we have kids or grandkids in school, we see that we're now sort of into the rhythm of school and and heading towards the Christmas break. Many of us who are in college are writing papers. I happen to be writing a massive one right now. We prepare for the new year. When will we take vacation next year? Where will we go? What are we forecasting to do at work next year? And we prepare for Christmas. What will I buy? Where will I buy it? 
Where will we spend Christmas and New Year's this year? Whose house will we go to first? What about that gift exchange at work? This is a time of year with a lot of anticipation and planning in it. When we make our plans, do we pay attention to God? Do we ask Him His will or what His plans are? Or do we pay no attention to God? As if to say, Lord, I'll see you Christmas Eve. Of course, we come to church in December because this is the time of year where you are really supposed to come to church. But is our heart in it? Is our mind really present in worship or are we just going through the motions? It's easy to check out. It's easy to just get through. Even in church to let our minds wander about things we need to do or presents we need to purchase or people we need to call. Our December worship reminds me a lot of the Israelites during the prophetic ministry of Isaiah. When Isaiah comes on the scene, Israel is in trouble. The nation of Israel is actually two nations, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. The Assyrians have been threatening them, and because they're divided nations, they, they really can't stand up against the powers of their day. They probably couldn't if they were all together, but being divided, there's no way. The power of the Assyrians is later usurped by the Babylonians who take all the people of Israel and Judah off to other parts of of their lands. They, They demolish Israel, they destroy the temple, and they spread the people out so there's no way for them to bond together in rebellion. Later they're allowed to return, but return to a much more desolated area. In fact, they will return to almost nothing. Most scholars believe that the book of Isaiah is really three different books because there's really three different sections. And the message changes so much between those three sections that some have even suggested it's written by three different authors. The first is written before the exile. That's where we just read at the start of Isaiah. Calling out to the people to return to God before something terrible happens. The second part is written in the middle of the exile, trying to understand what has happened. And the third part is written when Israel returns, and it's a warning to make sure we don't make those same mistakes again. Isaiah's warning in the first section of the book is that the problems of Israel are their own doing. Think about the phrases we just read in chapter 1. They've rebelled, a sinful nation, laden with iniquity, evildoers who deal corruptly, They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. And the country lies desolate. But still, in the middle of this devastation that they see all around them, they're not getting it. They will not turn to the Lord. It is only by God's grace that any of Israel is left. And listen right there at the end once again to the key verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings and of rams, of fat and well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. So Israel's keeping up the cult. They're keeping up the religious system. They keep doing the sacrifices. But the indictment of Isaiah is, you're going through the motions of your worship. God does not ultimately care about your sacrifice. God ultimately cares about you. And because your worship is not heartfelt, your relationship with God is off. 
And that, the implications of that are that then you're not treating people rightly. You're not trusting God to lead you, and you're heading for disaster. If this last verse was written today, we, we don't do sacrifices. But God might say something like, you think I care about your hymns and your call to worship and your sermons? I care about you. You can't just go through the motions of those things. But Isaiah is not only a book of warning or in wrath. It is also a book of hope. It is a book of promise. Here are these words. We already read some of them earlier in the service from Isaiah chapter 7. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the days of Ephraim departing from Judah, the king of Assyria. Yes, you're going to have to leave your land, Isaiah says. Judgment is coming, but with it hope. A child is going to be born. His name will be God with us. And he will be a sign that God has not abandoned us. He's going to be good and choose good. God has not abandoned you in your pain, but he is with you and will be with you in a special way in the future. Now, we don't read Isaiah all that much in church, really. There's one time of year, though, that we tend to get out the prophetic books. We tend to get out books like Isaiah. And that is now, in the season of Advent. The four Sundays leading up to Christmas. The term Advent comes from the Latin meaning to come. Advent is the season where we celebrate the coming of Jesus. Now, we obviously celebrate that in terms of his birth. Like we're getting ready and preparing for Christmas. But, but we mean it much deeper than that. In two other senses. Number one, that Christ comes to us in our lives today. Not just in the past. Not just as a little baby Jesus. But with us today in the power of the Holy Spirit. And also we look forward to Christ's return in the future. Where he will complete his reconciling work in this world. Do you know Advent actually begins the Christian year? Not the calendar year. But the Christian year begins today. It ended last week with Christ the King Sunday, the high point of the year, and now we're into Advent. Why doesn't it just start with Christmas? Because there's a period leading up to Christmas. It's similar to Lent. Lent is the time of preparation, repentance, and fasting before Easter. But the tone of Advent is different than Lent. Lent is more solemn time of repentance and recognizing our need for the cross. It is at Advent, however... That we use brighter words, like the words on the banners. Hope, love, peace, and joy. Advent is a season of expectation. A season of longing. Every week, we light another Advent candle. So that we see it slowly light up across the way. And we start expecting, anticipating that Christmas is coming. That the light is returning. Traditionally, the church did not do Christmas hymns until after Christmas. I don't know if you know that. It used to be that you did Advent hymns in Advent, 
And then when Christmas came, you broke into your Christmas hymns. Advent songs are different. They're slow, often in minor kings or minor keys. They sing of the coming of Christ. A lot of the wording right out of the prophets. And we've already sung one. We're going to sing two more here today. Why do we sing out of the prophets? Because we can identify with their longing, with their waiting, with their anticipation. Think about the journey it must have been for the church to wait on Christmas, to sing these songs of anticipation, and then finally at Christmas to break forth into those good old Christmas hymns. We love anticipation, don't we? My family uh, loves this really weird show on TV called Finding Bigfoot. Has anybody ever seen the show Finding Bigfoot? It's these people that go out in the woods and they try to find and evaluate evidence that Sasquatch is real. And I always tell my family when they watch this, you know, if they actually find a Bigfoot, it's not going to be on the show. It's going to be on the news. We're going to see it somewhere else. They're in their seventh season, seventh season of not finding Bigfoot. But you know what they do in that show? They build the anticipation. You think maybe, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the time where I might figure this out, where we might actually see some fur or hear the call. And you know what? If that show is on, darn it, I watch it too. (laughs) Because we like anticipation, right? That's the entire sport of baseball. You watch three hours for what totals about 10 minutes of action. But you don't know when the 10 minutes are coming, so you sit there and watch the whole thing. This is how scary movies work. Scary movies, a lot of the action is pretty quick. But then you're waiting and wondering when that is going to happen. Now, we don't always like waiting, but we do like anticipation. There's something special about Advent that causes anticipation for Christmas. The problem is that now we have all these hymns on the radio, on commercials, at Walmart and in the mall, these songs have already been playing for weeks. We're already hearing them everywhere. You know, they don't, they don't play those songs so that you get in the Christmas spirit when you're shopping. They play them so that you get in the shopping spirit when you're shopping. So by the time most of us get to Christmas, we're sick of them. Do you remember the book or the movie, How the Grinch Stole Christmas? It's just a classic book of Dr. Seuss. The story is of the Grinch who wants to stop Christmas from coming. So he goes down to Whoville and he steals all of the Christmas belonging. All the wreaths, all the Christmas trees. So that when the, he expects the Who's to get up and be sad at Christmas. But it doesn't work. And the Grinch is changed forever. Because it changes him. Really the Grinch had another strategy he could have used. The real way to diminish Christmas is to steal Advent. Because without Advent, Christmas is not so bright, not so joyful, and not so meaningful. Unfortunately, I wonder if that's exactly what's happened. I mourn the loss of Advent because I think it lessens the power of Christmas. That's why every year I preach and I talk about Advent. And we do one or two Sundays where where we don't do Christmas hymns, where we do Advent hymns trying to protect a little bit of that sense of Advent. Because it's important. Because if we don't think this way, 
then the words of Isaiah are going to be as much for us as it was for Israel. We're going to get stuck going through the motions of worship that only lead to rebellion against God, the abuse of others, and the desolation of our lives. But Advent, Advent is our holy rebellion. Advent is not a season to get through. It is a perspective to be taken. It is not the build-up for Christmas. It is a spiritual posture to strive for. And, And the perspective, the posture is this. Do you want Jesus to come? Really want Jesus to come above anything else? Because that's the good news of Advent. That's what we're longing for. Not just that Christ came, but that He will come again. That wrongs will be righted. That brokenness would be healed. That poverty would be obliterated. Lost people found and hatred removed. We don't know when. We don't really know how. But we live in hope. Not a sappy Pollyanna hope. Not ridiculous over-the-top hope. But steady, real hope. A longing hope, an anticipating hope. A pastor was preparing his Advent and Christmas services and was very busy. As he worked into the evening at his office at home, his daughter came in to see him. She had to say Daddy a few times before he finally looked up from his work. She said, Daddy, will you play with me? He smiled, but feeling the crunch of his work said, Honey, I have a lot of work to do. The girl was not happy with this answer. If you will play with me, I will give you a great big hug. The biggest hug you have ever had. Well, the pastor could not turn down such an offer. He told her, I'll make you a deal. Let me work hard for one more hour. And then I promise we can play together. She answered quickly, sounds like a deal. And she walked to the door to leave. But then she stopped suddenly whipped around, ran to her dad, practically jumped on top of him and laid on him the biggest hug he had ever had. He was startled. Honey, you said you would give me that hug when we played. She looked at him and with the innocence that only a child can have said, I know, Dad. I just wanted you to see what you had to look forward to. That's Advent. It's the time where you and I look up from our work, look up from our busyness, and see what we have to look forward to. I don't just mean Christmas. I mean Christmas as a sign of something bigger, a sign that Christ is returning someday and that the world will be made right, that Emmanuel, God with us, is still with us, and yet someday will be with us in a much more special way. Advent is the weird time where we look beyond our current realities and find hope that something bigger is going on. May you find in this season all that you have to look forward to. Let's pray. Lord, prepare our hearts and minds for Advent. Don't let us get caught up in the hustling and in the busyness. But Lord, I pray that we would see you, that we would... Sense your presence with us and that we would look forward, not just to Christmas, but to your return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.